listening to the Futures Podcast with me, Luke Robert Mason. On this episode, I speak to sociologist Professor Steve Fuller. If we're imagining a republic of humanity and we're imagining it in the condition of morphological freedom, then we're going to have to imagine a much wider range of human embodiments than we even imagine now. Steve shared his thoughts on transhumanism as a science-based religion, the value of taking a death-based approach to life, and why Friedrich Nietzsche is the futurist we need today. This episode is an edited version of a recent live stream event. You can view the full unedited video of this conversation at futurespodcast.net. Now, transhumanism argues that we should preserve and extend the unique properties that make us human by radically altering ourselves and the environment around us. Recently, transhumanist thinking has seen a resurgence thanks to new technological developments that point towards the possibility that many of its promises will soon be realized. In his new book, Nietzschean Meditations, Untimely Thoughts at the Dawn of the Transhuman Era, Professor Steve Fuller delves deeply into the challenges that a Inspiring transhumanists might soon face, from how they will choose to manipulate or upgrade their bodies to how they might approach the taboo of death, especially if, in principle, they could live forever. So, Steve, you're one of the very few academics that actually takes the project of transhumanism seriously. So, for those who might not know, what is transhumanism and what are some of the possible directions it might take? Okay, first of all, Luke, um Thank you for having me on this podcast. Yep. And uh, the way you introduce transhumanism is basically correct. And it's in the word transhuman. Uh, it's basically taking those properties of human beings that, that are most distinctive, especially distinguishing us from other animals, and amplifying and magnifying them. And so typically the kinds of things that transhumanists are interested in is extending, of course, biological lifespan, but largely in the context of wanting to expand our ability to have greater consciousness, greater rationality greater control over things in a way to have a greater comprehension of the environment, much more so than any other animal would. I think the thing that, that is very important to stress at the outset, and it, and it comes across in my book as well, while this is a new project, relatively new project in name, it's in fact been very much kind of the trajectory of the human condition ever since science and technology became the driving force in how humans both understand themselves and uh, reconstruct the environment to live in the world. And so we're talking about a project that might be associated with the scientific revolution, with the enlightenment, with the industrial revolution. Transhumanism, in a sense, just takes it to the next level. In that respect, it is very continuous with developments in modern history that we're already familiar with. Now, it feels like transhumanism has this preoccupation with overcoming mortality or, or conquering death. Where do you think that comes from? The first point to make is that, in a sense, modern medicine has already been on that trajectory. And indeed, uh, there is a sense in which, you know, very often the way we uh, talk about advances in medicine is in terms of the length of life that people have. And this has been kind of a preoccupation. The prevention of death, as it were, is a preoccupation of about 150 years. Because prior to the mid-19th century, uh, most medicine was about actually people coping with what was regarded as a natural lifespan, which is to say, right, uh, people are born they mature, they decline, and they die. And the idea of medicine was to get people used to that cycle. But starting in the mid-19th century, uh, we start to get a different conception of the of the human body, basically, and, and the human potential, which transhumanism, in a way, piggybacks on, which is to think of the body as kind of a platform, you might say, 
for a variety of capacities, properties, whatever, that you want, in a sense, to carry on performing in this way indefinitely, as if a, a perpetual motion machine. And in a way, transhumanism carries on that trajectory. But now, of course, bringing into, you know, in, in, into its uh, light the kinds of more recent developments that have to do with uh, gene technology, for example, and, and advances in nootropic drugs that can expand our consciousness and, of course, uh, cyborg enhancements through technology. All of these things, you might say, are part of the transhumanist armament to extend uh, the human condition. You know, the question you ask is, you know, why? You know, why do we have this preoccupation with this? Why can't we just be satisfied with living an X number of years and dying? And I think that's a very interesting question. And it goes to this idea of human exceptionalism, right? That it's kind of okay for animals to die. And in fact, that's kind of the animal nature. Animal nature is very much this kind of cyclical process of, of reproduction, right? Over, you know, the same kind of species coming into being over and over and over again. But human beings have some kind of inherent progressive kind of thing that breaks the cyclical view of history and goes off into the indefinite future, right, in some sort of infinite space, right, to boldly go where no man has gone before, all that jazz, right? This is, this is a mark of human exceptionalism. And it seems to me that is very much at the core uh, of the transhumanist mentality. Now, now, it feels like the transhumanist project on a whole is is split. It goes down a possibility of two routes. And it feels like we've got Aubrey de Grey and his indefinite life extension projects on one hand. And then we've got Ray Kurzweil and his idea of uploaded consciousness on the other. How can these two worldviews coexist under the same banner? Well, I think largely because they're both attacked by the same people. I mean, but actually they, they move in quite different directions. Uh, I think in a way this is a mark of just how uh, sort of a niche, you might say, or marginal that transhumanism is that in fact these two radically different visions of the transhuman future, uh, and there are others, of course, because neither of them is really a proper cyborg vision, coexist at the moment. And you're absolutely right, they do. And in fact, when you look at the history and the recent past over the past 25 years, let's say, of all the various transhumanist manifestos and so forth, you will find guys like de Grey, who's primarily interested in our being able to live in our the biological bodies of our birth indefinitely, that's his project, and Ray Kurzweil, who basically wants us to upload our consciousness into machines and to abandon biology altogether, right? These are completely contrary projects. Nevertheless, uh, you find these guys are both transhumanists, they both sign the same documents, and they both claim that they are, in, you know, interested in indefinitely continuing the human condition. And I think what they have in common is this idea that I was mentioning earlier, namely a certain sense in which the human body is, in a way, treated as a platform, no more and no less than that. And what really matters about the human being is, in fact, the various capacities and powers that can be launched from that platform. That the transhumanists would ask the question. What is the best platform, as it were, from which one could have maximum consciousness, maximum intelligence, you know, maximum whatever that human beings are normally distinguished from other animals on, right? What is the best platform for that? Now, of course, I think de Grey's uh, way of looking at things has a certain kind of intuitive appeal if you think that very much part of being a human being is actually the experience of being in the human body and the senses and all that kind of stuff, the interface properties 
of the, of the human organism with regard to larger reality. If you think that's very much essential to what a human is, then obviously de Grey's project uh, will seem very attractive. But on the other hand, if you have a more abstract notion of the human being, you know, this is the kind of view of the human that I think actually, if you go back into the um, ancient times, even with the Greeks, when we talk about being human, until we actually get to about the 18th century, human was primarily a, a set of properties Right. Um, and, and that in a sense, yes, uh, typically these properties were properties had by these upright apes. Right. But ne but nevertheless, not all of them were eligible to have these properties. And in any case, even if they were, they would have to undergo some kind of education, some kind of training. So in other words, the biological body itself, you know, on this second view is always regarded as a source of resistance, as something that has to be shaped, has to be molded. It's not necessarily a natural vehicle by which to convey all of these properties, like higher consciousness, higher intelligence, and so forth, that traditionally has distinguished human beings from other animals. And it's when you start to get that more abstract conception of the human, that then something like Kurzweil's project starts to make some sense. And, and I think, um, you know, this is kind of, in a way, represents in a way, uh, de Grey and Kurzweil, you know, in, even though they are both transhumanists, clearly, and clearly they have futuristic images of the human being, nevertheless, both of them are quite rooted in rather alternative visions of what it is to be human in the first place. I mean, ultimately, is the question that transhumanism is asking is, what is the value add of being a human in the 21st century? That's right. Uh, I think that's that's right. And I think this really ends up putting transhumanists in very tricky positions, especially if you start going down the Kurzweil route. I think that there is a uh, well, I mean, both the Gray and Kurzweil have some you might say some some hazards, you might say, if you go down either of their routes. I think in the case of Kurzweil, of course, there is this issue that we, we're, we're actually beginning to come to grips with in, in a, at a sort of policy level. And that is the idea of if you do believe that the silicon vehicles right? The computers are ultimately the preferred vehicle, the one that actually can amplify and extend and all the other stuff of the properties that we traditionally have considered most valuable of humans. If you find that to be, in fact, the case, that, then you might wonder, well, once you get a few of these things up and running, like through brain emulations or something like that, and there's some transhumanists who write about this as well, right? Where, where in some sense, you know, once you upload a few brains into machines, right, and they have, as it were, the complexity of the brain does, but they're just performing the functions in silicon in the enhanced way that silicon allows, then why are you going to need biological bodies at all, right? And so at a policy level, we already face this with regard to the prospects of technological unemployment, even at, you know, relatively high intellectual performance levels, you know, in medicine and law and places like that, not just with regard to manual labor, which there's a long history of technology replacing. So there's going to be this question on the Kurzweil side about what is the added value of being human uh, once we actually get the silicon version up and running? And, and so that's one question. That's the question for him. With regard to uh, uh, de Grey, there's going to be the issue of having too much of a good thing with regard to having a lot of human beings living around forever. As you know, first of all, we already have kind of population pressure as it stands. But people like DeGray would like to say, well, you know, uh, if you're living forever, uh, then you don't need to have so many kids because you can pretty much do all the stuff that in the past you would, you know, hope your kids are able to do, right? So in other words, you can have a kind of slower rate of uh, intergenerational reproduction. And perhaps if everybody can live forever, then there'll be no need to have children at all. Now, that has a lot of hazards with regard to, in fact, the sorts of features that we have traditionally considered to be distinctive about human beings, one of which has been the capacity for radical conceptual change. 
Okay, human beings, unlike animals, at least the way animals have been traditionally conceived, aren't stuck in a kind of pre-programmed way of, of seeing the world. They can reprocess their experience and in a sense reprogram themselves in very substantial ways, even if not necessarily at a genetic way. But of course, this is part of what culture does, right? The, the kind of superstructure of culture that is around us, right, provides opportunities for radically restructuring the human mind. And a key component of that is the fact that the people, that each new generation comes in with a blank slate. In other words, they don't have the baggage of history. They don't have the perfect memories of the past, right? So they can, as it were, take this world that they're faced with and actually come up with something new. And this is, in fact, you know, historians, sociologists routinely show that one of the, you know, prime drivers of uh, radical conceptual change is generational change. And if you've got the Grace scenario up and running, that it's not at all clear how you're going to get that, especially given that transhumanists, as you know, are very fixated on this idea of ending Alzheimer's disease, right? So, so these guys aren't just going to live forever. They're going to have perfect memories, right? And, and that is going to be a nightmare for any young person. It's already a nightmare, right? Uh, and it's going to be a nightmare the more and more these people accumulate on the planet. So in, in both respects, in both respects, Kurtzweil and DeGray, you really, if you really allow their imaginaries full flow and you allow them to succeed at the levels that they would like to succeed, I think you could start undermining, as it were, uh, some of this human exceptionalism. In a funny sort of way, it feels like scientific progress often happens one funeral at a time. But I, I want to turn to the figure who's quite dominant within the book is so, so dominant that he's actually on the front cover, and that's Frederick Nietzsche, uh, because he is a dominant figure in the book, and you say that uh, he was the original transhumanist, and not just the original transhumanist, but the futurist that we need now. Yeah, I think everybody knows who Friedrich Nietzsche was, at least in some vague cultural sense. But just let me just put a few markers down on the table and say exactly what I do with Nietzsche in the book, because I say the book is not about Nietzsche before Nietzsche. That's the first sentence of the book. So people, I, I don't want the Nietzsche scholars breathing down my neck. But Nietzsche is nevertheless a very, I would say, iconic figure in the modern era. So Nietzsche is living basically in the second half of the 19th century, uh, and he dies in 1900. And he's a guy who's originally trained in classical philology, right? So ancient Greek, Latin, all that, and gets a nervous breakdown and has to live on a pension for the rest of his life. And it's during this period that he actually writes all these very kind of inflammatory works. The thing that Nietzsche is confronting uh, with, remember, we're talking the late 19th century. So this is a period where industrialism and imperialism and Darwinism and, you know, all of these what will become kind of very signature modern, you know, framing devices uh, for the 20th century, all of these things are really picking up pace and becoming very dominant. And what they're doing is they're challenging human self-understanding. Because, of course, alongside of all of this great human progress has been some radical shifts in how human beings think about themselves. So, for example, one of the things that I stress in the book is kind of the theological origin of the human exceptionalism idea and the way this motivated science in the early modern period, including figures like Isaac Newton, for example. However, by the time you get to the 19th century, right, especially after Charles Darwin, you have this highly demystified notion of the human being, where as it were, okay, you know, people think they're creating the image and likeness of God, that leads them to do science, but then once they do, do science, lo and behold, they discover that they're really animals. And then the theology disappears. And then what are you left with? And this is where Nietzsche comes in, because Nietzsche is saying, my God, 
we are in a very funny position here, right? Because we have somehow thought that science is this great ennobling project. And now we do some science and look what we find out. We're just glorified animals. And Nietzsche's not going to put up with it, basically. But at the same time, Nietzsche believes, as he said very famously, God is dead. And so we have to take things into our own hands, basically. And in some sense, we have to reconceptualize. We have to reestablish, as it were, our exceptional status in a world that refuses to give it to us, partly because the God who gave it to us is no longer there, but also because the science that we have come up with doesn't give us that either. So we ha- we are o- looking at the abyss, basically, right? It's kind of a blank check, the future. How, how do you go from there? And Nietzsche was really the first thinker who took this matter very seriously and did not despair in any obvious sense. Because there are other figures from the 19th century, Schopenhauer, I talk about him a little bit, right, who in a sense despair at a lot of this stuff. But Nietzsche, Nietzsche in a way, is a kind of risk taker. He's a person who celebrates this. And this this is quite important feature, as it were, of the transhumanist mentality. Veronica Lipinska and I wrote a book a few years ago called The Proactionary Imperative. And that's about having a very open and positive attitude toward risk. And Nietzsche was very much in that mold. But Nietzsche was at the same time very cognizant of the fact that you take a lot of risks and you may just fail. You may just die, right? There's no guarantee just because you're this heroic, risky figure that you're going to succeed. And so you have to be in the right mind state to approach this situation. You can't assume that it's all going to work out. In fact, there's probably a good chance it won't work out. But nevertheless, the risk may still be worth taking. So Nietzsche is basically trying to create a kind of new morality, right? A new morality for this kind of post-theological world that refuses to go down slowly as an animal. And so the Übermensch, the Superman, which literally is what, what Übermensch means is the overcoming, the man who overcomes. And, and it's overcoming a lot of things, right? It's not just overcoming the animal nature in the way like, you know, you might say Aubrey de Grey and, and Kurzweil are interested in doing, right? Both of them, in a sense, are trying to overcome the animal nature in a pretty straightforward, literal kind of way. But Nietzsche is also talking about, in a way, overcoming all of the uh, sentiments and attitudes that on the one hand have been traditionally associated with human exceptionalism, right? All of the traditional foundations in theology from Nietzsche's standpoint are false. But at the same time, also to be able to overcome, as it were, the fear right, the dread of this kind of open world that we're now in, where we have an enormous amount of power in our hands through science, through industry, through all the rest of it. But at the same time, it is not clear what our nature is. You know, it's not clear what the end point is. It's not clear what the goal is anymore. And so Nietzsche, in the early period of his reception, that is to say the period before the First World War mainly, he is seen as a kind of heroic an existentialist kind of figure in this respect, you know, a person who is bold and courageous and and in a way realistic at the same time and future forward, right? And and one of the things I mentioned is that, you know, his the first English book on Nietzsche is actually published in the United States and it's not by accident given the United States aspirations in the early 20th century. But the point is after World War II, of course, a different kind of Nietzsche emerges in light of his having been appropriated by the Nazis. 
And so this whole idea of the Ubermensch kind of goes into rap, rapid decline because the Nazis embraced this notion and kind of made it their own, you might say. And so a totally different kind of vision of Nietzsche starts to emerge after World War II. Uh, Heidegger is very much behind this. And it's a more backward looking Nietzsche, you might say, a Nietzsche that is concerned about the genealogy of morals, where I, our ideas of morality come from. Michel Foucault is highly influenced by this kind of Nietzsche that I'm talking about here. And what I'm trying to do in the book is to go back to the original Nietzsche, right? The, the Nietzsche of the Ubermensch, when Ubermensch was not a dirty word, and it didn't mean Nazi either. So that's kind of why I put Nietzsche in the forefront of this, because I think unlike a lot of contemporary transhumanists, Nietzsche saw risk in a very robust sense. That is to say, uh, something that is challenging, that is worth embracing, but for which there are no guarantees as to what the outcomes may be. And I think that this is the spirit in which transhumanism should proceed. It should not proceed on the assumption that paradise is just around the corner if we accelerate a bit more. Yeah. I, I want to explore a little further this idea of theology and how that plays into transhumanism, because you say in the book that transhumanism sometimes feels like a science-based religion. And do you think it's time that transhumanists come to terms with the theological roots of their worldview? It, it feels like things like the idea of the original sin is so important to actually understanding modern transhumanism. Yes. Well, that's right. Let me start by this business about transhumanism being a science-based religion, because in a sense, it, that's true. I mean, transhumanism has a lot of the qualities of religion, except it doesn't really have a very self-conscious theology attached to it. My view is, and maybe this reflects my kind of sympathies for Protestantism, is that actually transhumanism would be a lot better off if it kind of understood the theology better and got rid of a bit of the religion. Because in a sense, there are some very profound theological ideas that I think do inform the transhumanist imaginary. Original sin is a very interesting one. I think the figure in, in, in Christian theology, who I think is most interesting as a kind of um, touchstone for thinking about it, transhumanism, is St. Augustine. St. Augustine, who is one of the early church fathers from the fourth century, he was the one who really, in a way, isolated original sin as a doctrine from Genesis and made it a big deal. It's quite clear, right, that, that human beings disobeyed God, and so they were expelled from paradise and all that stuff. The question, though, was what exactly was the nature of the sin, and what was the nature of the punishment that was meted out? And the point that St. Augustine makes was that the idea that we think of ourselves or maybe inclined to think of ourselves, and certainly other religions tend to think of human beings this way, as superior animals. He thinks that's a very debased way, and not really a proper way to come to terms with, in fact, what God did to humans, but rather that human beings are failed gods, right? So Augustine believes in the beginning human beings were gods, essentially, uh, and that we should take all that language about humanities being created in the image and likeness of God very literally, right? I mean, Augustine believes that. And so the expulsion from the Garden of Eden, in a way, turned us into animals, and that, in a sense, animals are not what we naturally are. We are naturally gods, but we have fallen from that state. Now, you see, Nietzsche inhabits some of that mentality, because Nietzsche's not satisfied with the idea that we're just glorified animals. In a sense, that makes life too easy for us. It doesn't explain enough of the nature of our drives, the nature of our ambitions, and things of that kind. And I think this is certainly true. Look at this from a purely Darwinian standpoint. So Darwin says we are animals. 
and we are smart animals. You might want to say superior animals in some sense, though Darwin probably wouldn't. But nevertheless, if you are to live like an animal and to live adequately like an animal, what you are trying to do is to be basically in balance with your environment. Right. So that you have, as it were, a steady carrying capacity generation after generation. You can reproduce yourself without exhausting the environment and thereby putting yourself out of business. Right. So you have this you have a sustainable kind of reproductive pattern. And this is the Darwinian view of all animals, including human beings. Now, if you want human beings to think of themselves that way then would they be engaged in all of this crazy science and technology that ends up extending lifespans indefinitely and uploading consciousness and amplifying our ambitions all over the place and enabling humans to live all over the planet and all over the universe, potentially in spaceships and all the rest of it? You know, this is not the way a, a, an animal thinks, right? This is not the way an animal thinks, according to Darwin, right? And, and in fact, I dare anyone any evolutionary psychologist, they pretend they can explain everything about our minds, to explain how science and technology in its most extravagant and characteristic forms of the kind that we have seen in the modern era, on which people like de Grey and Kurzweil trade, how does that make sense from an evolutionary standpoint? That is just setting up bigger and bigger risks for the human condition uh, to encounter. And so this business that we live in today, the so-called Anthropocene, is a reflection of that. And, and so... What kind of a being acts this way? Well, not an animal, right? But some wannabe God. And, and in a sense, original sin responds to this idea, right? Because Augustine is saying that in a sense, we still, as it were, have the divine aspiration that we had in the beginning before the fall. It's just that we are fumbling around trying to realize it. And in fact, you know, we might even fumble our way into extinction in the process. But the point is, that's the idea, right? That, that the human being, even in its fallen state, is still a fallen god, not a superior animal. And I think Nietzsche, in his own kind of atheistic way, is actually quite resonant on, on this idea. Basically, what you're saying is the way in which we can express our godlike capacity as human beings is through a willingness to take existential risk. And saying that feels very transgressive. It conjures the figures like Prometheus and, and Faust, who uh, attempted to be gods, but found out to their detriment that that was a problematic trajectory. I spent a lot of time, especially on the Faust story, which unfortunately it seems to have kind of faded a bit from sort of the common culture. You know, I can assure people out there that Faust was, in fact, the most characteristic way, especially of talking about the Western mind in the 20th century. If you had to come up with one cultural literary figure that, that epitomized the Western mind in the 20th century, then the name of Faust would always come up. And the key thing about Faust, and the Faust story in a way reflects something it has a kind of biblical resonance because there's actually a story in the New Testament that sort of reflects the Faust story. Basically, what you have is this very learned guy uh, who uh, is learned in science and in theology, and he picks up the Bible and he sees Genesis. Human beings are created in the image and likeness of God. And so for him, that gives him license to figure out God's tricks. I mean, it's basically as simple as that. If I believe the Bible and the Bible says this is who I am, then I'm entitled to find this stuff out, right? And so Faust is basically trying to find this stuff out by whatever way he can, right? He does stuff in labs. You know, he's kind of like a magician, right? A proto-experimentalist. But he also hooks up with Satan, you know, who makes him a deal, you know, makes him an offer he can't refuse. And, and so he ends up selling his soul in the process. And of course, that leads to a kind of downfall, though interestingly, 
in the most famous version of Faust, Goethe's Faust from the uh, early 19th century, God is, is merciful toward Faust and actually ends up sending him to heaven at the end, which is quite interesting. Hearing that is, is just conjuring images of robots. The idea of creating something in the image and likeness of us, uh, well, well, aren't yes. we creating uh, robots and, and forms of non-human life in the image and likeness of us? Is, is that, Project, what you mean when you talk about the idea of trying to discover our divine possibilities? Is AI part of that? Yes, of course. And, 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 and again, <laughs> th- this is not new. There was an excellent book uh, written about uh, maybe five, ten years ago now by uh, Philip Ball, excellent science writer, called Unnatural. I really recommend it to people. And it's basically about the, the history of creating life. Okay. And it start. where does it start? It starts with alchemy. It starts with the magicians. It starts with the kind of things that Faust was actually working on. And you, and you see this actually in the Faust play discussion of the so-called homunculus, which is like the smallest unit of intelligence that you could conjure up in a test tube. This is a concept that comes from the Middle Ages. Okay. This doesn't require embryonic stem cells or, you know, or, or any of that jazz. Or, yeah. Right, exactly. I mean, this is something that you could already find in the 12th, 13th century. And the Faust legend, this is one of the things that Faust is trying to do in order to get these godlike powers. So, so there's a whole continuous tradition of this. And in fact, uh, I mean, one thing I talk about uh, a bit in the book is uh, that this term robot, which comes from 1920, the original robot in the play uh, Rossum's Universal Robots, R-U-R, right? The Czech playwright Milic Chapek. Those robots in that original play from 1920 are basically, they're homegrown, right? They, they are kind of grown from embryonic stem cells, it would seem. They are organ farmed. You know, they're synthetic life. They're not machinery. This is the interesting point. They're not machinery. I think what Chapek actually had in mind was a kind of more up-to-date version of uh, Frankenstein, Right, because Frankenstein is also made of spare parts. And so this was a, a kind of slicker version of that. You know, it's all biological substance. It's not machinery. Right. What what is mechanical in the play, and this is the thing that made it made it very politically interesting at the time, was the fact that these living things that have been created live under the mechanical routine of capitalism. Right? So, so the mechanism comes from the social order. It doesn't come from the nature of the thing, which is living. And this then leads the humans to have sympathy with these robots and try to liberate them from their plight. This is what the play is about. This is the first public mention of robots is about that. So this idea of mechanical robots, that actually comes a little bit later. All of this really comes full circle and it comes back to the idea of what should our relationship with nature be? And and transhumanism feels like a very high-tech endeavor, and in many ways it is, but its trajectory is very dependent on how humanity sees itself in relation to nature. So what should the appropriate relationship be between humanity and nature? Well, this is a very complex issue, and it's an issue that, again, I would recommend people who are sympathetic to transhumanism, I would advise to see this as a growth area because there's really very little serious thinking about this question in transhumanism. Transhumanism is very is very curious, right? Transhumanists would rather spend a lot of time talking about what it's like to go off to other planets and how to do it than to actually figure out how to you know, live properly on Earth. 
it's a very curious thing. It's almost as if transhumanists have already written off the earth. But I haven't done that. And in fact, one of the things that I talk about in the book, in the first chapter in particular, is um, this movement within the environmental movement, which I think in a way can dovetail nicely with transhumanism, and that's eco-modernism. And eco-modernism is basically, it's kind of a high-tech environmentalism, but it's a high-tech that in a way considers it to be, as it were, the challenge. You know, if we want to talk about how special human beings are and how exceptional we are among all the other creatures of nature, the way we're going to do it is by showing that we can do more with less. In a way, that's the fundamental principle of efficiency. But the point is, let's imagine this as a kind of ecological strategy, right? So in other words, we want to be able to do all the things we can do and so forth. We should not be using so much biomass. We should not be using fossil fuel. We should not be living so much on the back of dead animals, essentially, and sometimes living animals as well. And in a sense, are minimizing that kind of dependency, minimizing the biomass basis of energy is a way in which human beings show the fact that they can decouple from nature and, and again, if transhumanism is to a large extent about our separating ourselves from nature in terms of our capacities, then one of the ways to do that is, of course, not to be so dependent on nature for all of the fuels and so forth that we need to keep our lives going. It seems to me that this would be the direction of travel for a transhumanist approach to environmentalism, and eco-modernism does provide a kind of blueprint for that. A funny sort of way, what you're showing us is how excessive detachment from nature is fueled by an excessive dependency on nature. So, in other words, if we need to fell trees and kill animals, then we're unable to accord nature the respect it deserves. And, and that really sounds like a fallen state, <laughs> what you were describing earlier. The, well, yes, exactly. The fact that we're taking full advantage. That's not, that's not very godlike. Surely no, it's not, exactly. Godlike ability is to manifest resources of our own creation and exactly. not have to take advantage of nature as a raw material. That's exactly the point. That's exactly the point. Or, I mean, another way to look at it as well is not only that we rely on our own resources, but in a sense, we're not dependent on some very specific kinds of things. And, and this is where it gets kind of interesting from the standpoint of, you know, if you want to look at the motivation of the people who are keen on... Um, taking off into other planets and so forth. And I've been involved with that kind of project with Rachel Armstrong. And it, it's a very intellectually interesting project. And, it, and who knows if the planet really does go to hell, it may be necessary. But the thing that's kind of very interesting in the context of eco-modernism about this idea of there being a space arc where somehow human life, you know, with other Earth life, can actually travel indefinitely across the cosmos is that it forces us in a very interesting way to reinvent ourselves, right? And if human beings are so exceptional, and if we are so, as it were, detachable from particular forms of nature, then we should be able to reinvent ourselves in all different kinds of nature. This is, in a way, part of our, you might say, spirituality, as it were, or ethereality, is the fact that we're not just dependent on one platform, that we can, in fact, migrate across platforms. We can survive in many different settings, both environmental settings and even platform settings. And that's why the idea of morphological freedom is a key transhumanist tenet that I spend uh, a, quite a bit of time talking about in chapter two. And this is the idea that human beings have the right to be 
in whatever form they want. Let's talk about morphological freedom from the perspective of one figure in the transhumanist movement who really embodies the future, and that's Martine Rothblatt. She's the founder of Sirius XM Radio. She's had gender reassignment surgery. She's a biotech pioneer. She advocates for this idea of mind clones and works on xenoplantation, which is the idea of transplanting animal organs into the human. So in what way is Martine Rothblatt's transgender gendered transhumanism, really the the current embodiment of morphological freedom. Martine Rothblatt doesn't just talk the talk, she walks the walk. I mean, in a sense, she is the morphologically free person, and, and she theorizes it in a very interesting way as well. You know, she is one of the people, you know, whose works I would assign, not just in terms of the continuity between the transgender stuff and the transhuman stuff, but also in terms of the idea of mind cloning and having multiple identities, some online, some offline, and what are the legal ramifications of that? I mean, I think uh, for people who are only vaguely familiar with Martine Rothblatt, I think it's worth mentioning that she is a a trained lawyer, and she she actually comes to these matters, you know, with a very keen legal mind about locus of agency, locus of responsibility, and so forth, if you're going to be in this morphologically free state. I do think one of the things that her career illustrates very well in in a kind of broader historical sweep in which we think about transhumanism is that morphological freedom needs to be seen as kind of the latest development in liberalism, okay, where liberalism is understood as this modern movement, which began when people's identities were no longer tied to their birth. Okay, and by birth, of course, if we're talking the 18th century, we are talking about, you know, who your parents were and what class of society they were from. Were they peasants? Were they nobles? Whatever. And you start to get a liberalization of the law uh, starting in the late 18th century, which opens the door to all this, because basically people become able to get into uh, private contracts to settle their status. The the job you get is no longer the job you inherit from your father, but rather it is the job that you contract your labor for in the city, right? Uh, That's already a kind of morphological freedom in terms of how you are configuring yourself with regard to the labor market. And of course, these things continue throughout the 19th and 20th centuries. And it's, it's hard, it's tough. Morphological freedom in all of its various forms, are not uh, very much uh, accepted. And I think with regard to the transgender stuff, we see that there are kind of obstacles there as well, because one of the consequences, one of the obvious consequences of people having the freedom to alter their identities is that the basic categorization by which society is organized, right? Because society is, you know, for better or worse, tends to be organized along lines of race, class, gender, age, right? All these markers, right? Social markers that in a way classify people. If you're able in some way to move between them at will in some sense, you know, maybe as a result of some procedure or something, but nevertheless, it is your choice to do it. Then that really does, on the one hand, it democratizes it. You know, it makes the world a kind of freer place in that sense. People have more access to different things. But what the overall effect is Right. What does a society look like as a coherent unit that allows so much freedom in the change of identity? That is something that we struggle with, obviously, with the transgender movement, that that is the case now. But transhumanism, in a way, ought to be in the forefront of this kind of discussion. 
because transhumanism in a way represents, you might say, the ultimate endpoint of all of this. And one of the ways that transhumanism can be part of that discussion is through a transhuman politics. And you spend a lot of time in the book outlining what a transhumanist politics would really look like. And, and in a funny sort of way, you say that transhumanism has a bipolar politics. It has a manic mode and a depressive mode. So could you explain exactly what you mean by that? Well, I mean, there is this enormous optimism uh, about transhumanism, and this is usually when transhumanism is discussed in libertarian terms, right? So there's all this freedom for the individual and, you know, we can upload our minds, we can live forever, all this kind of stuff. And of course, if you recall 2016, Zoltan Istvan produced this transhumanist bill of rights, ran as presidential candidate in the election and got an enormous amount of media attention and to my mind actually did a lot to popularize transhumanism and kind of get transhumanism's issues in some kind of dialogue with the typical policy issues that politicians talk about. So I give him a lot of credit for that. But the point is that in a way it's very individualistically focused. And and I think the problem is that you're going to really need to have some kind of welfare state idea if transhumanism isn't just going to end up exaggerating the differences that already exist in society. But the problem is that when transhumanists start to think in collective terms, you might say, the only thing they ever seem to be able to come up with is existential risk, right? So the idea is we're all equally threatened by superintelligence. Oh my God, right? We've got to somehow put an end to this or regulate it or I don't know what, because half the time transhumanists are saying they want superintelligence and the other half the time they say it's going to destroy us. And so this is very weird. And so, you know, Nick Bostrom would be an example of this, right? Who speaks from both sides of his mouth, you know, who's been in fact, one of the people supporting superintelligence, but at the same time say, oh my God, it's going to destroy us. And so therefore, you know, give me a million dollars so I can start an institute. So transhumanism in a way, I think what this reflects is that transhumanism really has not yet, and maybe is not even really very comfortable thinking out the full social consequences of this stuff becoming true. I mean, I think in a way, transhumanism, you know, seems like a sort of jolly project at the moment because everybody, I think, in the back of their minds know, well, it's not going to happen that soon. We're going to have time to think about the consequences. But I'm not so sure. You know, in other words, who knows what's happening in China, for example, that that in fact, some of these things that the transhumanists are promising us may, in fact, happen sooner than we think, in which case then we better have the right politics in play. Otherwise, we're going to have a, a very radically divided and divisive world. You say in the book, what we need is a republic of humanity. In, in other words, a politics that's going to be able to deal with the implications of humans rising to godhood and animals or machines rising to the level of humans or a situation where some people have their minds uploaded, some people are potentially living forever. I mean, there's going to be a spectrum of, of difference that's going to emerge if all of these transhumanist projects are equally taken seriously. So what does this Republic of Humanity look like? The, the idea of a republic, just from the standpoint of the political theory, uh, a republic is basically a society of equals and where citizenship is the mark of equality. And, and citizenship is something that in republics is typically not something uh, that you necessarily inherit, but that somehow you have earned by reaching a certain standard. And And in a lot of the 
early city-states that were republics, wealth was typically the marker. But of course, when we talk about citizenship tests these days, right, we talk about people being able to pass literacy tests and stuff like this. But the idea is that these equals, in a way, you know, you're, you're, you're imagining that people are coming from many different backgrounds. They're all moving into this republic. And so you need some kind of common standard by which you can judge them to say that they are equals from the standpoint of the republic. And so if we're imagining a republic of humanity and we're imagining it in the condition of morphological freedom, then we're going to have to imagine a much wider range of human embodiments than we even imagine now. And as you know, the history of politics in the modern era has been one long struggle for even achieving a level of political equality among people whose differences are simply at the level of race or gender or class. But now imagine if we've got bigger differences to play with, online, offline, machine, animal, right? I mean, imagine, you know, the different kinds of needs that these beings have, the different ways in which they express themselves, the different ways in which they would flourish, trying to establish a kind of common standard by which all these beings could live together in a state of mutual recognition is actually quite a, a, an enormous political challenge. But it seems to me this is the political challenge that transhumanism needs to take on board if it is to be considered a serious political project. And so that's what the Republic of Humanity stands for. You look at our current politics, our left-right politics, and you argue that what might actually happen is a move to an upwinger and downwinger politics, where basically politics is is judged by its approach to existential risk and, and whether we're able to socially deal with some of these risks that we may be uh, pursuing. I, I guess society will recover, though, won't it, through something like adaptive preference formation? Well... Yes. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what, I mean, I guess what I'm really asking is what happens when we move from a, a left-right politics to an upwinger okay. and downwinger politics? How will that change our approach to existential risk? So we're we're kind of familiar with the left-right distinction in politics. It comes from the French Revolution. It had to do with the seating arrangement in the National Assembly after the revolution. And the people on the right were the ones who wanted to um, return to the monarchy, basically return to the status quo. And the people on the left were a combination of what we would now call liberals and socialists who basically wanted to break with the past. And of course, Western politics in particular uh, have been very much dominated by this polarity for the last 200 plus years. The thing that this distinction had in common was that these different uh, political orientations were competing for control of the state, right? The state was the, the thing. And then mobilizing the state in the way that these ideologies want. Now, the state has, in fact, become less and less salient as a way of organizing social life, uh, certainly since the end of the Cold War. And this has then thrown up a kind of issue, which we see increasingly, about people, especially younger people, not being particularly engaged with this kind of traditional left-right politics uh, because they don't really see the state as this kind of bulwark you know, that can actually do stuff and, you know, make society right or something like that. The state doesn't have that kind of salience for them anymore. And so voting and stuff like that doesn't matter so much. And so younger people have a kind of different orientation, in fact. And and this is where the up-down thing comes in, because I think you see up-down 
while of course there's precedent in the older generation, of course, I mean, most transhumanists, for example, are quite old people. But nevertheless, this is a kind of younger person's distinction, up versus down. And I think you have to imagine the metaphor working in the normal way, where the upwingers are the people who imagine the sky's the limit, right? That human beings, right, we can do anything. We can inhabit the cosmos, we can emancipate ourselves, we can do what we want, right? We just have to allow ourselves the freedom and the opportunity to do it. And the downwingers are the people who believe, no, uh, at the end of the day, we are very much implanted on planet Earth, and that's the only way we're going to survive. And if we don't get on in planet Earth, end of humanity, you know, no ifs, ands, or buts. This is the kind of polarization we're talking about, right? So we've got these very kind of transhumanist, technophiles, people who are quite happy with escaping the planet if necessary. On the other hand, we have the Greta Thunbergs of the world and all of the Extinction Rebellion and, and the very radical environmental movement. And both of these have a lot of young people attached to them. And what they're doing is they're really disentangling in many ways, uh, kind of disintegrating the kind of common conception of humanity uh, that the state upheld and which had kept the left and the right on the same wavelength for 200 years. That is being split apart by this upwinger-downwinger distinction. And I associate the upwingers with the transhumanists and the downwingers with the posthumanists. And the downwingers include not only environmentalists as we normally understand them, but I also put in that category, and I think this is not a trivial point, Pope Francis. Because Pope Francis, in his various encyclicals, has been very keen and very shrewd in associating environmental justice with social justice. And so the precariousness of the planet is closely tied to the precariousness of the poor. And we see this with the pandemic and everything, right, that these things, they're the most vulnerable, right, with climate change, the poor most vulnerable. And, and I think one of the things that Pope Francis picks up, and I think this is where the pull of the downwinger perspective comes from, is that the transhumanists don't show, as it were, enough sense of solidarity with the human condition, it really does sometimes look like every man for himself. And I think that is a kind of public relations problem that transhumanism has that I think is going to be pretty hard to shake unless it really takes its political theorizing seriously. Now, Steve, I want to ask you about a very particular section in the book about death, because it's one of these things that it feels like transhumanists struggle to deal with. It's, it's a lot about overcoming death, but they never talk about a relationship with death itself. And in this book, you are on a apologetically confronting death, what Timothy Leary called the, the last taboo. So in what way do you think that death is central to the human condition and, and the transhumanist worldview? Death, I mean, you know, in, in the history of, of certainly Western philosophy, that meaning in life only comes from initially the recognition that you're only around for a limited period of time. So that, in a sense, forces you to uh, allocate your resources wisely, you might say. So in other words, you realize at some point in your life, perhaps early, perhaps later, that you are going to die and all the things that you think you might be able to do or want to do, and you're not going to be able to do it. And so you have to think about how am I going to organize my life? Okay, so it becomes a kind of a, a budgeting problem, you might say, a budgeting problem of time and energy. And it's in that process that meaning in life is generated, right? I mean, this is a very classical kind of philosophical view. And in this view, for example, suicide was justified when, you know, someone figured out, okay, I have now done what I think I could do, and I don't see why I need to hang around any longer. 
and I've done it. Uh, and it's over. And living as such, you know, as it were, spending the extra years hanging around, sucking up the air, is not intrinsically valuable. And so suicide is, is one concept that is very closely tied to this idea of life having meaning. You know, you might be able to reach it before your time is up. And so with transhumanism, transhumanism in a way kind of really uh, problematizes this kind of premise, right? Because transhumanists are constantly saying they want to live forever. And they're really trying to, really hard. And it's almost like the most important thing. You ask, well, then what is the meaning of a life uh, that can go on forever. This is not exactly obvious what the answer is. Now, transhumanists, when they try to approach this question, they say an enormous amount of banal things. Transhumanism has some high points. There's some things about transhumanism that are very sharp and very smart. But when they talk about the meaning of life, it is awful. I mean, because it's basically we have more time to consume. We can go on holiday forever. We can try out different things. We don't need to have our children do things that we were hoping to do. We can do them ourselves. We are just seen as this receptacle of pure experience that experiences forever. In a way, it's kind of a consumer paradise. It seems to me this misses the whole point of what the meaning of life is supposed to be, right? The meaning of life is not just about accumulating experience. <laughs> and, and so one has to think about then well, what should be then the place of death in this transhumanist imaginary? And the way I approach the matter is that death, in a way, first of all, should be at least voluntary. So one of the things that one worries about with transhumanism is that a lot of the ideals that it projects, especially the ideal about living forever, is an offer you can't refuse. In other words, uh, if you say, no, I don't want to live forever. You know, I don't even want to live as long as I'm supposed to be living. I don't know what a transhumanist would make of you. Now, I have heard some transhumanists say such a person is crazy, <laughs> right? I have heard transhumanists say stuff like that, right? That if people are offered the opportunity of living forever and they say no, they are nuts. And I think that's wrong, of course. Do you think the, the discussion of life extension should actually go hand in hand with the discussion of euthanasia and, and what you call yes. in the book rational suicide? How do we bring both of those to the table when the idea of death is so taboo? Look, this is the point, right? If you have the opportunity to live forever, a whole lot of moral issues start to arise, especially given the issues that I was raising earlier with you about the generational change stuff. You know, so in other words, if part of the point of transhumanism is to promote human exceptionalism, right, we're talking about something that is the exceptionalism of the species, not the exceptionalism of you as an individual, right? So you still have an obligation, as it were, to humanity as a whole, even if you individually are allowed to live forever. And part of that responsibility may be to make sure that you're able to, to make room for new people to come on the scene who might come up with radical new ideas and revolutionary new ways of seeing things that do not require and are not dependent on this long memory that you have been preserving through the hundreds of years that you've been alive like Methuselah. So th there may be a kind of moral responsibility to get off the stage at some point. Now, one doesn't have to be so drastic about this, though, though I would say that's a serious option, okay? And that, again, the politics of life expectancy ought to go into this kind of issue. Namely, even if you have the opportunity to live forever, do you have the right? And whether there should be some obligations placed on how people manage their lifespans, okay? And there are a lot of ways one could be thinking about this, but the bottom line is it doesn't mean that everyone will be allowed to live forever. 
The alternative, of course, if people insist on living forever and they're in this wonderful, healthy state that Aubrey de Grey thinks, then send them off to colonize other planets. That's a great, I think that's a great use for the, for Methuselah, you know, <laughs> just send these people off and, you know, this would be Elon Musk's clientele. It might get to the point where we can't, we can't actually send our, our body off planet. So what we would have is, is a, a form of suicide. We would basically vacate our substrate and then upload our minds and then well, send then, the information okay, okay. off into space, into some robotic avatar and some other planet. So you're raising a very, very interesting, very, very uh, profound point, I think, about how this death business that we're talking about feeds into the the way people think about what mind uploading is. Because at the moment, I think all this stuff that Kurzweil talks about with regard to mind uploading is so uh, philosophically problematic is because people have a, a real issue about, you know, how would exactly you would, you know, informatize, as it were, you know, turn consciousness into a stream of information that then you could somehow upload into a machine that would continue processing it. People have problems uh, understanding exactly how that process would work. However, what we do have now, and this is where the death part comes in, is we do have this burgeoning industry, which another one of my PhD students, Deborah Bassett, has uh, written on, the digital afterlife industry. And that's the new look of death. It starts to look a lot like mind uploading. And, and so the idea, of course, and their Black Mirror episodes devoted to this and all the rest of it already, right, is you take advantage of the fact that people already on Facebook and all these social media platforms you know, and, and people have been doing this before social media, right? Self-archive, right? They self-archive. You know, so when you keep photos and albums and, you know, you, you keep all your old letters, you know, and, 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 you know, you keep all of your drafts of your books and papers, right? That's a long tradition of self-archiving and where, and where you have all these works that you don't publish, but you want to keep so others will see when you're gone. What in German is called Nachlass, right? I mean, there's a long tradition of that. And and it used to be something that scholars and important people do uh, or self-important people do. But nowadays, anyone can do it on social media, right? They can do it on Facebook platform. They can put up their photos, put up their videos, right? Put up their audio. And, and people, boy, oh boy, do they do that, right? They're just putting up stuff all the time, text, everything. And of course, you know, when the person dies, this is kind of amazing kind of like uh, Legacy, right? It's an amazing dig digital legacy. And so both the people who do this and the people who you might say would be the natural audience for the loved ones, you know, both of them have got interested in this idea of a, a digital afterlife, which isn't just the maintenance of the platform after the person is dead, but also, you know, you could put in some fancy algorithms that enable some mixing and matching and splicing and, and enable some reprogramming, right? So you can come up with, you know, new versions of audio, video, text that are in the style of of the deceased party. So as it were, they continue to have this continuous life. So the algorithm, as it were, is processing all of this material that has been inputted and then producing new versions, new avatars of the deceased one. And this, uh, depending on the algorithm, the algorithm could have uh, um, interactive effects through this uh, avatar, you know, conversing with people on cyberspace. It may develop new ideas, new traits. There have been cases, for example, where children have been spooked out by their algorithmically driven dead dad. As this digital afterlife stuff becomes more sophisticated, okay, and becomes more accepted, 
then uh, I think there will be questions arising as to what the difference is between that and mind uploading. Well, well, I want to look at the more nuanced way you're looking at death within that last chapter of the book, because you develop this idea of necronomics, the ability to find value in something as irredeemable or seemingly irredeemable as death. And you actually come up with a whole bunch of positive proposals for necro politics, which to me was very surprising, but I wonder if you could share those <laughs> with, uh, with our audience. Oh, there are lots of them. The, the business about generational change is, in a sense, a very much a, a key kind of idea. Namely, one of the things that, that uh, you have to think about when you think about the meaning of your life is that the meaning of your life may, in fact, not be something that you directly experienced, but is something experienced by others. And so therefore, the relationship of your life to others matters a lot. I, I talked, for instance, about the fact that there's a lot of cases where people who die younger by accident or whatever actually end up, their legacy ends up becoming much more profound than people who just hang around past their sell-by date, as it were, and then die old and their reputation somehow get warped and, and changed and transformed. And so it suggests that there's like a, in terms of people's reputations already, there is a, you know, one almost gets a sense that there's a kind of optimal time in life where it's best to get off the stage if one wants to preserve the value of what one's already done. And, and that's a very difficult concept, I think, for a lot of people to think about. But it is one where it seems to me that if you really take the idea of the meaning of life seriously, and, it, and that the meaning of life is something that is experienced by others, not necessarily by yourself, then that, I think, is a very worthy consideration, especially in a context where you have quite a lot of discretion, as you would if, if you had the opportunity to live forever, you have a lot of discretion to decide exactly how you manage the time. Now, our first question from YouTube is, what is the most dire ethical dilemma for transhumanism? Okay. I mean, I think there, there, there are two, and uh, just and in a way, it kind of brings together issues we were just talking about. One is the issue of inequality. And given the libertarian strain of transhumanism, how do you prevent inequality uh, from just going even crazier than it already is? In other words, transhumanism has the potential to exacerbate the worst tendencies of capitalism. How do you prevent that? Uh, the second one has to do with what is a responsible attitude toward life if you do have extended life? And how do you need to think about your relationship to others, including subsequent generations in light of that? We have an another question from YouTube here from uh, David Wood, who asks, are there any technologies that you think should be treated in a precautionary way, e.g. experiments to make bioweapons more deadly, for example? <laughs> I mean, you know, the terrible thing about all this is uh, when, of course, you put it that way, oh, I don't want bioweapons to become more deadly. Uh, but of course, that's not the context in which these things ever get developed. They're developed <laughs> in the name of national security from by countries that feel they're tremendously threatened. You have to think about this matter in a non-question-begging way. <laughs> in other words, no, you're absolutely right. We don't want things that are going to be really bad. But what is really bad? I mean, and the problem, and I think the deeper problem here is that, in fact, a lot of the science and technology technology that would create these weapons of mass destruction, these biological weapons of mass destruction, are the, you know, the, the biology behind the biology that it would be used is probably the kind of biology that probably gets used also for all kinds of wonderful things. You know, something, you know, short of having some sort of um, 
multilateral, you know, arms agreement that just stops building weapons of certain kind altogether at the international level. I mean, that might be one way to go on this, but, you know, you'd have to get all the countries to sign on board for that to have any kind of efficacy. I just don't think one can give any kind of general answer other than that. We have a question from uh, Jose Cordero who asks, uh, Steve's fear of overpopulation reminds me of Malthus, but population can increase with more and better technology. And in many countries, the problem is shrinking. So uh, so how do we deal with this whole population issue, I guess, is the question there. Uh, the population issue, I think he's right in a way, uh, right? I mean, I think the population issue isn't really the most, I, I mentioned that, but I don't think it's the most important issue. I think the more important issue is the responsibility to future generations and the idea of, you know, how are you going to make room? So yes, we, we, may, we may get a kind of sustainable population and it may be with zero reproduction. <laughs> Right. So we'll have a very sustainable population of the same people who live forever. This is what I worry about. There's another question here from YouTube, a very, a very short one. Can you be born a transhumanist? And I guess to, uh, I guess to add to that, uh, does it just, is it nature or is it nurture? Does it come from just spending <laughs> too much time on internet blogs? Well, you know, it's interesting because I, I do think transhumanism is a bit of a branding thing, you might say, right? When Julian Huxley coined transhumanism, the word in the 50s, 1950s, he was just talking about our ability to uh, direct our genetic future, that in a sense we can eliminate diseases and we can make people healthier at the genetic level and, and you know, we can you know do all kinds of wonderful things like that. And the way Huxley was presenting it was very much as a kind of a continuation of the sort of task of, of modern medicine as I was describing it. It wasn't that different. So I do think what makes transhumanism distinctive you know, is in a sense the particular sorts of technologies, the particular sorts of strategies that turn out to be the focal point of interest. You know, so this fixation on uh, uh, cell regeneration, you know, and the kind of stuff Aubrey de Grey does, you know, the fixation on cryonics, the fixation on mind uploading. I think in a way, um, these are the things that get most closely associated with transhumanism and they seem rather exotic on the surface. But the general sensibility, I think, is very much part of a kind of uh, indefinite continuation of the modern mentality. I don't think it's that weird to be able to get, actually. And I do think the media, by the way, presents both positive and negative versions of this all the time. So I think we're in a, you know, we're in a media environment that is actually very open to this kind of thinking. We have another question here from YouTube, which asks, uh, how does transhumanism confront something like nihilism? And I know you mentioned briefly in the book the idea of uh, Nick Land's dark enlightenment. I know you touched briefly on this idea of nihilism. So there is this kind of you might say a kind of evil twin of transhumanism, which is a certain kind of posthumanism. That is to say, it is a it is posthumanist in the sense that it wants to decenter the human, which posthumanist regard as kind of the original sin, you might say, right? Posthumanists basically think that this privileging of the human is the source of all of our problems, environmental problems, all the other problems in the world. And so there is this uh, kind of evil twin of transhumanism, which Nick Land, who is this British philosopher uh, now living in China, um, promotes under the rubric of the dark enlightenment. And the idea is, he says, you know, Ray Kurzweil and all these transhumanists who are talking about the accelerating rate at which technological change is happening and how that we're going to, you know, we're on the we're on the cusp of this singularity that will just, 
you know, completely put us in a totally different, you know, world, mind space, everything. Of course, when transhumanists say this, they're being positive, right? They're 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 basically talking about, you know, this is when heaven happens. But Nick Land, while he believes, right, that this acceleration is happening and it will take place, he doesn't believe the consequences will be very benign at all. In fact, he believes, you know, he believes that it's going to basically blow the planet apart, essentially. And he says, bring it on, right? He says, bring it on, because that'll finally cut those goddamn humans down to earth. And then on the other side of this apocalypse, caused by all this accelerationism, then people will regroup, and they will be more humble, and they will realize that they are just one species in a hierarchy of nature. And, and you know, they will then be able to live sustainable lives that will not be jeopardizing themselves and the planet all the time, but it'll be in a much more diminished form, and it won't involve the kind of hubris that transhumanism trades on. So that's a kind of nihilistic vision that, as it were, takes the transhumanist premise, but then draws a completely contrary conclusion. And in that scenario, it's, it's only about 70% of the population that we're supposed to lose. So 40% right. is our, is our, our right. growth potential. Um, you you right. conclude the book by looking at transhumanism's PR issues and yes. say that sometimes transhumanists are dismissed as fantasists, or perhaps they're just obsessed with this idea of, of escapism. What are some of the ways in which transhumanism can solve this potential PR issue? To my mind, I think in a way it goes back to kind of some of the, the narcissism of some of the transhumanist discussion. So it's not by accident that the kinds of deadlines that are being given all the time for uh, the singularity to happen, you know, for whatever, the next great breakthrough to happen, right? It's always within the lifespan of the people making it. You know, just, just enough, just enough, right? You hang on long enough, you know, you might be 70 or 80, but, but you'll be one of the first people to be successfully go into cryonics and be able to get unfrozen, right? This kind of thing. And so there is this, there is this kind of narcissism about it. What you don't get from transhumanism is any sense that a lot of this very risky research, and let's not, let's not make any bones about this, all of this, you know, whether you put yourself in deep, you know, deep freeze, of course, it doesn't matter, the cryonics, because you're already dead to begin with. Putting yourself in cryonics while you're alive would be a little riskier. But the thing is that, uh, you know, all of this research, you know, if we were talking about taking drugs that at the moment only animals are allowed to take, but if you, humans take them might extend their life expectancy and, you know, all this other kind of risky research of xenotransplantation, all this kind of stuff. I'm all for that research, okay? But I do think what, what transhumanists need to present themselves, present it as risky and that they take the risks, and that this is not necessarily going to be plain sailing. And that, in fact, all of these promises, while they may be deliverable in the long term, may not be deliverable in the short term. And in fact, there may be a lot of carnage along the way in terms of people's lives being lost, especially if we allow riskier experiments to take place. And I think transhumanists need to be very straight about this kind of stuff, because that's the only way in which you'll actually get people to take you seriously. Because I think what people do not take seriously is a bunch of narcissists who are basically promising that there are going to be these breakthroughs that just so happen to coincide with their lifespan, right? I mean, I think people find this a little too convenient. You know, it may or may not happen. I'm not saying it won't happen, but I'm just saying that it doesn't seem compelling. Transhumanism has to, in other words, project itself as a project that people are in it for the long haul, 
they're in it for the long haul and that, and that they themselves may not benefit from it, but it may be subsequent generations who benefit from it. And it has to be worthwhile at that level. It needs to have a greater sense of self-sacrifice built into its ethos. I was about to conclude, but we just had a fantastic question from YouTube, which I think you would enjoy, Steve, which is, if we were to teach kids transhumanism at school on the curriculum, should it be taught within religious education or science studies? And I know you have a little bit of a background in uh, yes, uh, yes. <laughs> education uh, policy. That's a really interesting question. That's a really interesting question. Let, let's put it this way. <laughs> and I'm going to give you a very practical answer. If you really want to teach transhumanism, in its very full-throated sense, which makes it very exciting and dangerous and all the rest of it, teach it in religion. Sci sci science class will not tolerate it. Well, I, I want to conclude with, with just really <laughs> thinking about bringing all of this together, because uh, do you think that any of this will come to pass in our lifetime? And if not, or if it will, uh, but I guess if not, is it worth believing in transhumanism if you don't directly stand to benefit from it. This is my point, right? You have to believe in it, even if you don't benefit from it. Otherwise, the thing is a fraud. <laughs> I mean, I, in other words, I don't, you know, look, look at something like Marxism, for example. People believed in that for a long time, and it actually did a lot of good for a lot of people, I'm, I'm sorry to say, but it did. But the point was, people were in it for the long haul. Right. They were in it for the long haul and they suffered through it. And actually, if you look at the history of science and technology, until we get to, let's say, the last 25, 30 years where we start going ethics crazy and everything has to be regulated, all research has to be regulated. Prior to that time, there was an enormous amount of self-sacrifice and sacrificing of others that went on in the name of science and technology. OK, and we need to recover that kind of spirit in the history of that. Uh, it has not been the, necessarily the case that the people who have done the sacrifices have personally benefited from it, but subsequent generations have. And I think that is the spirit in which transhumanism needs to present itself. It is a project for the long haul. And it's not just a project for people to think that, they, you know, if they invest in the next, you know, kind of wheeze that comes down the track, they'll be able to be the first person to live forever. I think that's not the right way to think about it. And I guess the uh, the individuals are in the longest hall of them all of those currently in cryonics. So on that <laughs> note, definitely I, a long haul. Uh, yeah. Definitely a long haul indeed. The the only uh, medical procedure where the patient actually has to be patient. So on that <laughs> note, Professor Steve Fuller, I want to thank you for your time. Well, thank you, and thank you to everyone who participated. Thank you to Steve for sharing his unique perspective on the transhumanist worldview. You can find out more by purchasing his new book, Nietzschean Meditations, Untimely Thoughts of the Dawn of the Transhuman Era, available now. And don't forget, you can watch the full unedited video of this conversation at futurespodcast.net, where you can find out about all of our upcoming live stream events. If you like what you've heard, then you can subscribe for our latest episode. Or follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at Futures Podcast. More episodes, transcripts, and show notes can be found at futurespodcast.net. Thank you for listening to the Futures Podcast.